Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be hearing about the history of climate change and learning why mandating vaccines should be done carefully. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know that the climate is warming. Today's human-induced climate change is relatively novel, but that doesn't mean that the climate has been stable until now. Here's climate scientist Raphael Newcomb from the University of Bern in Switzerland. So that's always a big question when you look at the media about the current climate change. Is this extraordinary or has it happened before? The Earth's history is in fact littered with pockets of cooler and warmer periods. For example, from around 1300 to 1850 AD, there is a time known as the Little Ice Age. Unsurprisingly, a cooler period. Chiruta Kulkarni, a historian from the Open University who studied the Little Ice Age, explains that life then was hard. You could have a blend of droughts, colder summers, even winters, or there were years which were continuously colder uh, as compared to the previous years. People could not cope with it. A Serbian monk from the 16th century put it simply, writing, It is terribly cold, my brothers. So what caused the variations in the climate in the past? And how do they compare to what's happening now? Well... Raphael and his team have been trying to find out, and this week he is presenting a model of temperatures across the globe for the past 2,000 years. But since there aren't exactly thermometer recordings from 12 AD, to build his model, Raphael looked for what is known as proxy evidence. Data from natural or human archives, for example, tree rings or lake sediments, marine sediments, ice cores, corals, or also old written documents. This proxy evidence can give Raphael information about past climate. For example, in warmer years, trees can grow more, and so the tree rings for those years will be thicker. Nice. But this isn't a foolproof measure. Things like rainfall can also have effects. And so Raphael used as much proxy evidence as possible, 
over 200 records to average out the variability and build up a clear picture. And what we find based on this is that earlier warm or cold periods didn't happen at the same place at the same time. Before 1850, Raphael found that climate warming or cooling was never consistent across the planet. For example, during the Little Ice Age, in some places the coldest period was during the 19th century, but for other regions it was several centuries earlier, quite different to what we see today. For more than 98% of the globe, the warmest multi-decadal period actually occurred within the last 100 years, so in the 20th century, so that's a really global consistency that we do not observe from the early periods. Now, on average, the globe is warming everywhere simultaneously. Scott St. George, a researcher who studies the history of climate who didn't work on this study, thinks we can have confidence in Raphael's conclusions. They've really tried to do the reverse estimate in almost every way possible. I think they use about eight or nine discrete methods to combine this this jigsaw puzzle of tree rings and lake sediments and ice cores into this global picture of past yearly changes in temperatures. And because they kept coming up with the same answer, no matter what the statistical toolbox that they, they applied, then we can be a little more confident that the results they're getting are not a reflection of their own their own personal choice or their own preferred method. So according to this study, in the past the climate warmed and cooled in chunks a patchwork of local climate change across the globe rather than the global change we see today. The next question is why? There is clear evidence that now human emissions of carbon dioxide are forcing temperatures higher. But in the past 2,000 years, other things may have been more important. Over longer timescales, the causes of climate shifts are harder to pin down. But in a Nature Geoscience paper, also published this week, Raphael looked at shorter durations to get more definitive answers about the causes of past temperature changes. And there we came to the finding that most important drivers of the global mean prior to industrialization is actually volcanic eruptions that tend to cool the climate on large fractions of the globe over multiple decades. It's still unclear what caused longer-term changes, such as the Little Ice Age. But it's possible that volcanic activity played a role. But one thing we can be sure of is that current global warming is unlike anything we've seen in the past. Here's Scott. The world that we're living in today is synchronised in terms of temperature in a way that it hasn't been for at least the last 2,000 years. And so when we talk about the, the unusual temperatures, the the impact of global warming that's having on the planet. It's not just a question of the Earth overall being warmer. It's that in a lot of ways, there's no place to hide from this warming. Everywhere is warming. That was Scott St. George of the University of Minnesota in the US. You also heard from Raphael Newcomb of the University of Bern in Switzerland and Charuta Kulkarni of the Open University in the UK. You can find Raphael's papers over at nature.com, along with a News and Views article written by Scott. Coming up later is the news chat where we'll be finding out about India's latest mission to the moon. Now, though, it's the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. Scientists have been making surfaces that can drive droplets of liquid along at high speeds over long distances, 
even defying gravity. To move a droplet along a material, the researchers modified the charge across the surface. This caused positively charged liquids to be pulled along. In this way, droplets could be propelled up vertical surfaces or even travel upside down. The researchers used this technique to make a small water droplet car. Using four droplets as wheels, they showed that small objects could be transported. They hope that in addition to transporting objects, this technique could have applications in harvesting water or self-cleaning surfaces. Slide on over to that research in Nature Materials. <laughs> Love them or hate them, scientists from University College London have found that laugh tracks do make things funnier. They did this by playing 40 groan-inducing jokes to participants and getting them to rate their humour. Jokes such as, what does a dinosaur use to pay the bills? Tyrannosaurus checks. <laughs> the researchers were able to show that the addition of laughter increased the perceived funniness of the joke. Not all laughter is created equal though, as the team were also able to show that genuine spontaneous laughter increased the rating of humour more than the stage chuckles associated with your least favourite comedies. Giggle along with that research over at Current Biology. It's hard to overstate just how important vaccines are. The idea is simple. Prep the body's immune system for particular threats. And the impacts of vaccines have been immense. The World Health Organization estimated that vaccines prevented at least 10 million deaths between 2010 and 2015 alone. Well, in a way, we are in the golden age of vaccines. This is Saad Omer of the Yale Institute for Global Health in the US. There have been more vaccines available than before. There are new vaccine technologies that are coming online all the time. But having said that, there's an asterisk. And that asterisk is a big one, because in spite of these advances, some people are refusing vaccines. When it comes to certain diseases, like measles, Vaccines have been so effective that some parents may feel the risk of vaccinating their children outweighs the benefits. As a result, measles rates are rising rapidly. In the first four months of this year, the number of measles infections was more than three times that for the same period the previous year. Saad has written a comment piece out in this week's Nature, arguing that overcoming this problem will take more than simply making parents vaccinate their children. Reporter Adam Levy gave him a call. Now, something that has been discussed and, and also tried to, to, to turn this around is to mandate vaccines, to make it actually necessary that parents vaccinate their children. But there is actually a big variety in what these mandates can look like, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mandates come in various shapes and sizes. For example, um, all states and D.C. in the U.S. allow exemptions from these mandates for medical reasons. Forty-five states allow for exemptions from these mandates due to non-medical reasons such as religious only or religious and philosophical reasons. So there's a, a whole variety both in terms of how they're implemented, what are the penalties, and how easy it is to carve out exemptions. 
Now, naively, as someone who doesn't work in this field, I would have thought that the harder you make it to to get an exemption, the better. But in this comment piece, you're arguing for a slightly more nuanced approach. So, yes, for example, in California, a few years ago, they eliminated all non-medical exemptions to their state-level mandate for for vaccination. And we, what we found was there was a bit of a replacement effect. So there was a higher rate of people filing for medical exemptions. Then some parents are seeking homeschooling and other ways of avoiding uh, the implementation of these mandates to them altogether, and so on and so forth. There is a sweet spot that you hit through this approach. Are there any actual risks of negative effects from making a mandate too harsh? There's some evidence in that context. For example, this really nice study from Germany looked at this phenomenon and found that people's um, perceptions of vaccines can become, if they had negative perceptions, become more entrenched if you mandated um, a vaccine. So what are the alternatives to mandates that should be done either instead or, I suppose, at at the same time as mandates to, to increase vaccination rates? The state of the evidence suggests that, to, to paraphrase uh, Voltaire or more recently uh, Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, and with the, the power of mandates should be exercised with uh, deliberation and maturity and with nuance. But having said that, vaccine hesitancy or non-acceptance due to behavioral reasons is not the only reasons why children are, are not getting vaccinated so mandates work best not in isolation but in conjunction with other interventions. For example, having a nuanced look at the reasons for under-vaccinations, um, using immunization registries and sending reminders at the population level have been very effective, for example, in Australia. And then providing vaccines, again, in communities uh, is helpful. So, so that's the second step if you're thinking about mandates. And do you think that all these approaches could turn around the trend that we've seen in vaccine uptake? We should approach vaccine policy and vaccine interventions from a perspective that demands evidence. And if we do not tolerate suboptimal evidence in vaccine development science, we should not tolerate suboptimal evidence in vaccine communication science or vaccine policy. We don't have a choice. I think vaccines have been one of the most significant successes, not just for public health and biomedical sciences. I'm not being hyperbolic uh, when I say as a species. And so it would be incredibly sad if we lose some of that progress. And, And so I guess we don't have a choice but to bring our A game to addressing some of these issues in vaccine acceptance and science. That was Saad Omer of the Yale Institute for Global Health in the US. You can find his comment piece over at nature.com forward slash opinion. Finally on this week's show, it's time for the news chat. I'm joined this week by Holly Else, one of the reporters here at Nature. Holly, hi. Hi. 
Thanks for joining me. And you come to me with breaking news. At the time of recording, the UK has just found out it has a new Prime Minister. It does. This literally just happened about an hour ago. Um, So Boris Johnson has been elected as the UK's new Prime Minister. And he's going to be the man to pull us out of Europe with Brexit. Before we get into what this might mean and the, the B word that is Brexit, how did we get here? So Theresa May handed in her resignation at the end of May because um, she couldn't get Parliament to agree on the terms of her Brexit deal. Um, And that triggered a leadership contest within the party um, and Boris Johnson won this morning. I guess the question is then, what might Boris Johnson's leadership mean for Brexit? He has said that he will deliver Brexit whatever happens by the 31st of October Um, And that could mean that we're leaving without a deal, which would obviously be catastrophic for scientists who rely on the European Union for funding and also enable them to recruit people from overseas without having to go through protracted visa hoops, for example. Um, Obviously, scientists like to travel to conferences and they do so really easily at the moment as we're part of the EU. Um, So those are just some of the things at stake if if we left without a deal. Okay, and moving away from Brexit as well, has Boris Johnson said anything during the leadership contest about what his plans are for science? He hasn't said much. He said a bit about the bioeconomy. What people are waiting for him to talk about is this... um, policy that we have in the UK, where, which was bought in by May, um, where we're hoping to spend 2.4% of GDP on research and development by 2027. So this is a promise um, that was made and scientists have been eagerly awaiting the details of how that will happen. But that's kind of got caught up in Brexit machinery where nothing's actually happened about it. And now we don't know even if Boris Johnson will continue that policy now he's in power. And that's important because obviously that's money for researchers to do their work every day. So has there been any response from scientists so far? Well, a bit. Um, Mainly a lot of the things we've already discussed, but also some people saying that um, Boris Johnson tends to like sort of big shiny projects. So he he infamously supported the Garden Bridge, which was this pedestrian bridge over the Thames, which was ill-fated and cost a lot of money, but looked very good. Um, And so that could actually be a benefit to science because he's interested in these really big shiny projects. So maybe we'll get a new um, massive research centre into some area of science which he can tout about all over the world at how great we are. Well I guess we don't know much at the moment so we'll have to see what happens with Boris Johnson's leadership going forwards. Moving on to our second story then, Holly, India are shooting for the moon. What can you tell me about this? Yeah so this week they launched a spacecraft uh, with an attempt to reach the surface of the moon. So what is the aim of this mission to the moon then? Well, they've tried before and didn't make it. And this time um, they obviously want to make it. Uh, And they're hoping to land in a little research region of the moon, the South Pole. So previously other countries have landed on the moon, uh, have done so at the equator. And so there's not really much known about this area. As they say, we will be exploring the unexplored. So why are they shooting for the poles? Well, no one's ever been there before, for one. Uh, And also, because it is a pole, it may contain vast amounts of resources like water, oxygen or hydrogen. And that could be really helpful for future exploration of the moon or even making a moon base. And so this mission has just launched. When will we know that it's been successful or not? Well, the lander will land on the moon on the 7th of September, if all goes to plan. Well, we'll have to look moonward on the 7th of September then. 
Holly, thanks for joining me. Uh, listeners, if you want to find out more about those stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's all for the Nature Podcast this week, but there is just time to tell you about a video I've made. It's all about how virtual reality technology is being used in neuroscience. And you get to see me failing to beat a rat in a memory task. Head over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for that. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.